Beware children, beware. There are no safe spaces. It is not enough to be aware of the peril not only out in the world, but your own home. Awareness will change nothing. There is no way to navigate these. The shadows of each will cross your heart and overcome you. They will dance across your face as you lay prone after the damage to all that lay at the center of you. All manner of beasts lie in wait to eat or be eaten by you. Ghosts of the living which are regrets that hang on the mind, tampering with action. Phantoms that are who they or you could have been. The monsters these things make us and our parents all wait to consume you. But you needn't try to escape. After all, you don't exist without them. You depend on them. Discerning when to stay and go is an art forged by fire that you may never master as you find over and over that so much of life, even your very continued existence, is an act of desperation. There was once a merchant who was half gnome, half man. He lived deep in the woods. He built his house close enough to the city to conduct regular commerce, but far enough away that his affairs were his own. Drink could flow without gossip doing the same. He could entertain multitudes, huge parties with bonfires, clothing not invited, or only one or two girls, and things could get loud and raucous without any concern for the decorum of cities. He could howl with the beasts. He was successful by almost all measures, amassing a great wealth and seeing much of the world. But as the weariness of age began to set in, he found himself growing lonely for less temporary companionship, such as he was accustomed to. Finding someone to be with him was not such a simple task. His wealth could provide him with a blushing bride, but their virginal embarrassment would in turn embarrass him, leading him to feel like a criminal in his own home. He could hardly imagine meeting her domestic marital expectations, and though he could imagine her meeting his carnal ones, these were unrealistic fantasies. As such, although he was looking for a wife, his actions did not much change. He was in a house of wanton women, lovelies ready to do whatever was needed for coin. He was going to ask if there were any girls sitting the day out in the back room due to blood, which tasted better to him than all other things. When he saw her, the woman he wanted to marry. She had three eyes, two in the normal place and one in the middle of her forehead, a feature he was sure made her the most or least popular in the house. Whichever it was mattered little, he could work with either. Only a maiden who expected to be lifted into perfect bliss would prove tiresome to the merchant. Smitten, he reminded himself to be cautious. He paid to have her for the full night. The cost told him that she was the most popular. Alone in the room, they bathed each other like cats, trying not to miss a spot. He found himself caught up in the pleasure of her tongue, even as he attempted to assess her desires and willingness to indulge his, as well as her own appetites. She did not shy away from any position. A look of hunger crossed her face when she saw his half-known cock. This pleased him greatly. Too many times, even courtesans would let an instant of shock 
pass over their face before letting it fall into a practiced expression of false desire. She was not hesitant about any position he desired, and she looked like a mirage of a goddess as she rode him with the rhythm of a dancer. Her breasts were a firm mouthful, which managed to hypnotize him even from her three eyes as they moved just so above her slender belly in concert with her hips, enchanting beyond measure. When their arms were around each other, the world was in an immaculate state. It was almost morning, and though he didn't want to ruin the night with words, he needed to know something about her for what he wanted her for. He asked her if she liked her work. Well enough, she said. It's honest despite its reputation. He agreed, almost too eagerly. But for his own purposes, he asked her if she might ever want something different. She gazed at him earnestly with all three eyes and said that she had always found it in her interest to focus on what she had currently, not on potential futures, for they did not truly exist. This answer was unexpected, unlike anything he'd ever heard before. He liked it. They may one day, he said, and fell asleep with his head on her breast, gentle with the rhythm of her breathing, natural like the woods he made his home. She watched him sleep, aware that she wasn't supposed to indulge in thoughts such as being swept away by him. She fell asleep to forbidden dreams. As they bid each other farewell, he said that he would be back soon, and he hoped she would think of him, while also letting her know that, come what may, he never expected to own her. He took a journey as merchants will, and though he enjoyed the encounters he had on the road enough, he missed his three-eyed working girl. He got bored licking bodies with breasts that were too small or hung in an unappealing way for their largeness, legs too short, asses too flat, all flawed for not being her more than anything else. He had never felt this way before. She continued to work, but she also thought of the merchant despite her penchant for living in the moment, which did not include him. Until the day it did. As soon as he came back from his journey, he went to visit his three-eyed future bride and paid for the full night. This time he tested her with light bites, nothing that would draw blood or leave marks. She responded by biting his finger and scratching her nails down his back. He licked all three of her eyes, and though he was not a brute, he did not handle her gently when he pulled her hips toward him or pushed down on her back so that her ass stuck up higher in the air. When he cupped her breast, squeezed her ribs, or held her wrist, he used the strength in his hands, watching her as she met his eyes without flinching at all. All that they did left them laying in a wonderful prone exhaustion, side by side, catching their breaths. The good night air lay cool on their exposed bodies, made all the more enticing by the fact that each of them was too fatigued to attempt to hold themselves in flattering ways. Everything fell where it would. They lay in the near morning, smoking from his pipe. He asked her how she had found herself in her line of work. I was born with the eye, she said. A princess, actually. Although, in the eyes of everyone except my father, my disfigurement made me not exactly suitable for royalty. My mother killed herself. My sisters took power and had him decapitated. I was supposed to share his fate, but my executioner could imagine my worth to a house like this. 
He convinced them to let him sell me, and it's been good enough for the most part. A few men have tried to gouge out my eye after they finished. He stroked her forehead and said that to deface her so would be a terrible crime. His hand drifted down to her throat as he asked her how many men she had seen decapitated. He held it there, feeling the vibration of her voice as she said, Just her father's, all others she had looked away. Her gentleness was appealing, not arousing impatience in him as often such things would. She would be a good mother to his part-gnome children. She told him that when they cut off her father's head, the blade was not so sharp as it should have been. So he was not killed on the first blow, which severed the nerves and made his body go limp as he waited for the second. She was made to watch. There were worse tortures than death. One of her sisters lived in memory and was always trying to steer the kingdom back to some strange imagined past. During the execution, she had looked away, not wanting to store such a horrible thing with all the rest that it might be revisited. Her other sister spent all her days in an equally non-existent future. During the execution, she stared as she told the executioner to finish things off and not to sharpen the blade before turning it on her three-eyed sister. Had he proposed any fate but the one the three-eyed courtesan was living, surely he would have been declined. She did not get excited or emotional as she told him this. She did not flinch away from his hand at her throat, which squeezed just enough that it had to be uncomfortable. He removed his hand and put his head on her breast to listen to her answer as he asked if she wished that she had died. No, she said without further explanation. He asked how she felt about him. Really, not the paying customer answer. She responded with her body, allowing for every bit of gentleness, wildness, and savagery within him to be expressed without judgment. She showed no shyness. As they said their goodbyes, he promised they would see each other again. Now, the women in this house did not work without protection, and the lover's discussion was overheard by a meandering guard who proceeded to warn his employer that a wealthy merchant had eyes on the three-eyed girl. While the no man would certainly pay well for her, the proprietor of the house decided that a strategic move for her to the house he owned across town would be best. This didn't happen right away, for the merchant was out of town, and the proprietor didn't want word to get out of his prize's location. As the weeks passed, it became apparent, if only to the three-eyed princess, that she was pregnant. The day she was being moved, she had bleeding, and even in her fear of loss, she shuffled her skirts so that droplets fell, making a trail that the merchant could follow to find her. Everywhere he went, he longed for her completely. The road was a haze, pointless and eternal. In his mind, he was always in her house. If he had to, he would pay everything for her and rebuild his wealth in time. The day he returned to the house, he was admitted only to find she was not there. Obliquely speaking guards managed not to answer any of his questions before expelling him with instructions not to return. Forlorn and lost, he got stumbling drunk. Face down on the cobblestones, he smelled the droplets of blood, small and perceivable only to someone with gnomish heritage, such as he. (laughs) 
Not caring if anyone saw, he licked the stones and crawled along the blood path. He was sobered and focused by the fact that the droplets came from her most primal place in the most primal way. He was pulled as if by divining rod to where she waited for him. At the door, more guards denied him service in the form of another night with her, but she threatened to throw herself from the fourth story window should the house's proprietor not allow them their time. Under this threat, the proprietor permitted the lovers to see each other, armed already with an impossible deal that the merchant would not possibly abide by. Is it mine? He asked about her now swollen belly. Although I see much, she said, that is not something I could possibly know. It doesn't matter, he said, and he drew her close, and they breathed each other in. After, the merchant approached the proprietor, cock wet, and yet more determined than ever. The deal brokered required he pay handsomely, all except his manor in the woods, where he took the three-eyed maiden. It was not long before she gave birth to twin daughters. They were barely talking when the three-eyed wife recognized in one daughter, a strange but sweet girl, a penchant for looking backward. Much as the three-eyed wife's sister, but combined with knowledge about the past of others. The other daughter, hands and clothes tinged red with berry juice, had a bent toward looking forward, much like the three-eyed wife's other sister, but combined with prophetic abilities. These aspects of her children warranted caution, but rather than prejudge the babes as had been done her, she vowed to be a good mother with a gentle guiding hand. The merchant, wild and reckless as ever, remained attracted to this gentle side of her. They took each other whenever the chance presented itself, in what were the most beloved days of their lives. Five years passed before the three-eyed wife became pregnant again, and though the merchant never sought to possess his wife, it was known that the babe was his, and he found his eyes grew wide with her belly at the life they had made together. It was not a difficult birth, and when she was presented with the baby, she found herself overcome. Up to that point, she had lived a life of awareness and love, but never attachment. Her first years spent upon the lap of her father, he was attached to her and the prospect of being as untethered as she was. Her detachment had guided her through her working days, leaving her immune from the upset that haunted other girls. Upon meeting the merchant, she was taken in her own way, but remained unattached. He accepted her detachment and inward gaze. These were part of their relationship as much as anything. At the birth of the twins, she could see that they would always have each other, and they had the wholesome look of the descendants of men, unlike her bearded, gnomish boy child. Though she loved them all, it was in her own enlightened way. But looking into the face of her son, she was swept up, and truly she felt that she would die without the boy. And the eye on her forehead pulled into her face, leaving smooth skin as if nothing had been there before. And on the face of the boy, above his bushy eyebrows, appeared a third eye, and it only made her love him more. Men seldom witnessed the birth of their children, but for the merchant, the savagery of the ordeal was appealing, and he beheld the entire event, including his wife's transformation. He held her and kissed her where her eye had been, 
like a prince attempting to reawaken a sleeping princess. But her eye would not reappear, and as she began to cry for the first time in her life, she was unsure if it was the happiness of seeing her new son, or the sadness of the loss of herself. She was whole and well as she nursed, as much as she could be, for her son was at her side. But the person she had always been was receding, much more than it had even just becoming a mother. Daily, the twins wove healing and protective laurels for their mother, and while they were not unskilled at botanical magics, their mother grew increasingly ill. At the same time, the merchant grew increasingly resentful as he felt bound to the house by his wife and children's need for care. Almost nightly, as soon as the house was sleeping, he would slip away only to return at dawn. Although he had wanted a handsome bearded toddler for some time, and he had hoped that their child would share his wife's most distinct feature since meeting her, now that the boy was real, the merchant begrudged his son for taking his wife from him. Of his children, he struggled most to take care of the boy. His wife succumbed to her illness before the boy turned seven. Each twin privately blamed the other for having magic that was lacking, and each wished that they had taken on the responsibility of keeping their mother alive alone. To bury his wife in the garden, the merchant requested the assistance of a wild woman he had met in the wood who could turn into a bear, a wolf, or a fox, making her adept at digging. Before she began to dig, she looked at the dead woman. She ran her fingers gently over his wife's forehead. It's strange seeing her without the eye, she said. How did you know her, he said. She's my sister. I ran into the woods after my mother died. I haven't seen her since she was a child. Though they were in-laws, once the Midnight Princess was laid to rest, the wild woman spent more nights in the manor than either of her dens. She was needed by her nieces and nephews, but not her wolf, bear, or fox children any longer. She enjoyed the merchant's untamed ways, the reckless abandon they could express with each other. He enjoyed her as a bear, a wolf, a fox, and a woman. It was a good match. She was fond of all three children. Even still, the merchant could not fully stop pining for his first wife and blamed his strange son for his loss. The wild woman told the boy that he was loved on a daily basis. With the same frequency, his father gave the boy opposite messages, such as that he desired another son worthy of all that he served to bequeath. The merchant said in the absence of a son, the twins would be his heirs. He reveled in finding flaws in the boy and took every opportunity to send the lad out to cut his own switch, while doting on and spoiling the girls. One day, the merchant had a shipment of handsome tanned hides that needed to be delivered to the top of the glass mountain, a place that the wild woman could get to much more easily than he, just by turning into a wolf to cross the meadow, a bear to use her claws to scale the mountain, and a fox to come back home lightning fast. She agreed to make the shipment for him, and he crafted a pack that was usable by a wolf or a bear, and she set off with it on her back. In her absence, the merchant set a trap for the boy. 
He had sent his son to bed without supper the night before, without giving any clear reason for the punishment, and he had woken up early and eaten breakfast and lunch without him. Then he called the boy into his office, where there was a trunk of apples next to his desk, where the merchant sat eating one of the fruits. The hunger that twisted the boy's whole face almost touched his father's heart, but it also shined in the child's three eyes, reminding the man of his loss. The merchant gestured to the chest, asking the boy if he wanted one. The child reached for an apple eagerly, but as soon as his head was in the chest, the merchant slammed down the lid, decapitating his son and dismembering the boy's right hand. He took the boy's body and propped it up on a chair so that he was seated over his wife's grave with the kerchief around his neck holding his head on the stub of an arm in his pocket, and an enticing apple in the boy's intact hand. The forward-looking twin had warned her sister to beware of her brother offering an apple over their mother's grave. But when she saw him there, the strange twin went up to her brother nonetheless and asked him for an apple. For hatred had begun to grow in her heart for her sister, and it felt good to be in defiance of her. When her brother didn't answer, she went to tell her father, but found the forward-looking twin tattling about the same thing. Now, the strange twin's ability to see the past of others told her that her sister had not approached their brother. She also saw what her father had done, but not why he was involving his daughters in his misdeeds. The boy needs his ears boxed for his insolence, the father said. Fearing what would happen should they disobey, the girls took their leave to the garden. On the way, the red twin said, I was trying to spare you when I told on our brother that you need not see what is about to happen, a vision I've had since our brother's birth. The sisters hugged, and the strange twin turned to take her leave, only to find that their father was standing behind them. He put his hand on her shoulder and said, I was watching the garden. I know it was you who asked the boy for the apple. You should be the one to box his ears. Though they all knew what would happen, none of them could look away. The strange twin flinched as she boxed her brother's ears. His head fell off, and she crumpled, unable to hold herself up any longer. She lay doubled up and crying. The red twin did her best to comfort her sister as their father placed their dead brother on his back and disrobed him. He sliced the boy from his breastbone all the way down, lifting the skin and muscle to make the cut and avoiding puncturing the digestive organs. He started pulling out all the pieces of the boy and was unabashed as he cut off bits of the boy's heart, liver, kidney, and muscle, eating them raw. He took all but the boy's bones into the kitchen and set to cooking. The red twin and the strange twin gathered their brother's bones and buried them beneath the tree alongside their mother that she could watch over what she loved the most for all eternity. The merchant finished cooking just as the girls finished in the garden, and they cleaned themselves up in time for the wild woman to come home. The merchant greeted her with hungry zeal. Affections expressed, the family sat down at the dinner table. The merchant told the wild woman that the boy was hiding, part of some childish game with his sisters, and that he would either appear, summoned by the smells of blood pudding, or they would search the manor for him after dinner. Having just finished some very hungry work, 
The wild woman didn't question this, but rather sat down to eat, commenting over and over again about the deliciousness of the food and admonishing the girls for not eating. The merchant, if anything, ate more heartily than the wild woman. The twins could scarcely manage to hold back their tears and were dismissed from the table. Outside, a mist grew around the tree where the boy was buried. The roots of the tree split open and a beautiful bird like no other flew out. His feathers were iridescent. He had a green head and yellow breast, reminiscent of his beard. He was blue and had an eye pattern on each wing, as well as on his violet tail. His song was like the morning doves. He flew to the divided kingdom. Although it was dangerous for him to enter the castle, where the warring queen of the dawn and queen of the dusk resided, he sought a birthright for his sisters. The queen of the dawn possessed a magic headband that allowed the wearer to climb to any heights and practice any acrobatic feat without falling. In a gaudy display, she would climb high above her subjects to precarious positions. She proselytized from her perilous perch about why they should not fear the future. After all, she was not afraid. She captivated them with her physical grace, enhanced by costumes, made by seamstresses who had little choice but to do her bidding, for she imprisoned their children in a high tower that only she could reach. She told the folk she feared nothing, but the only thing she was unafraid of was the heights she could not fall from. And theirs being a divided kingdom, on occasion where her sister's subjects, or even her own, revolted against her, she would climb far up until she was untouchable. The injustice of her actions sickened the bird, and he plucked the powerful object from her bedside while she slept. The Queen of the Dusk possessed an enchanted guitar that could play any song without having to learn it, while also giving the possessor an effortlessly melodic voice to match. The Queen played songs so hypnotic as to mesmerize even her sister's subjects. Lullabies of a fictional past that became a collective and beautiful dream. She serenaded them with tales of working together to get back to the wonderful past, under her benevolent guidance. She donned herself in magnificent silk scarves, woven by the tiny fingers of the finest weavers. Fair young maidens trapped into doing her bidding by their parents, willingly imprisoned in a dungeon that they refused to leave until they too could play the guitar with the same skill as the queen who visited them, promising that they would sound like her, if only they did what she did without elaborating. They held on to the hope and worshipped at the altar of nostalgia while their daughters worked tirelessly. Whenever her sister's subjects rose in revolt of her, the queen of the dusk played, summoning a crowd of her own faithful, creating a human shield and the need to kill innocents to get to her. The kingdom was in stalemate. The injustice of her actions sickened the bird and he plucked the powerful object from her bedside while she slept. He flew back home with the headband around his neck and the guitar in both talons. As he passed over the garden, he saw his sisters, beaten and raped but triumphant over their father. The strange twin hacked at him with an axe, while the red twin used a hatchet. They did not relent, even as he ceased to have form, and only a bloody mess remained. 
Rather than stop, the bird found the wild woman in the woods, where she searched all the small places for him. He landed at her feet and began to cry. She turned back into a human and asked the bird what troubled him so. Her nephew told her the entire story. I'm sorry for eating you, she said. I wouldn't have had I known. It's not your fault, he said. Though I could use your help with figuring out what to do with my sisters. They discussed the possibility of killing the girls who would not find peace in this life. But they were the only thing human that remained of the wild woman's parents. Her own children were bears, wolves, and foxes, and her other sisters had neither married nor had children, not wanting to share power. Besides which, it seemed like a loathsome deed. They decided to take them to the earthly world beyond the mist, where the wild woman's father had come from. They would take the strange twin's backward glance to save her from reliving the previous days and put it in her sister, who could monetize her gift for prophecy better by knowing the secrets of those who sought her advice. The strange twin would be gifted the guitar and the headband. The bird would take the red twin to the highest mountains in the north. The wild woman would take the strange twin to the forest in the south. They would take the girls while they were sleeping. Exhausted, the girls fell into a deep sleep before they could even clean their father's blood off themselves. In a whisper, the type of which happens only between sleep and wakefulness, the red twin said, I will take care of your boys when they come to me. Her sister was asleep before she could respond. When the bird and the wild woman found the girls, he placed a wing on the head of each until both their powers rested in the red twin. He was able to put her on his back, for he grew at such a rate that when he got to the northern end of the world, surely he would take up the whole sky. The wild woman turned into a bear and put the strange maiden on her back. She wore the headband and strapped the guitar to her niece. The bird and the strange maiden bid each other farewell as they stepped into the mist. The girls slept through the treacherous fog between lands. These were so dense that all was invisible except the mist which became memory. Memory became ghost. Ghost became doubt, and doubt became monster. The bird was impervious to these and could fly through them, even as he saw his mother robbed of her third eye and his father's growing hatred took form. He flew over his own decapitation and the disembowelment that he had previously missed. He saw his own blood seep into the earth with his father's and the sky that would be the only thing that was big enough for him opened up. He crossed the entirety of the world with a mere three flaps of his wings, and he dropped the red twin off at the cave that would be her home for the rest of her days. They bid each other farewell. The bear struggled as the mist took form of the midnight princess with whom her father was enamored to the exclusion of everything else. She saw her kingdom starve and her mother kill herself. But while these things haunted her, they had driven her into the woods where she had gained the ability to turn into a wolf, a fox, and a bear. Her life was richer and better than that of her sisters, with their constant struggle for power. And though the future that the mist showed her was gruesome and not at all far off, she did not let herself succumb. She passed through to the forest of bones which delighted her senses, for there could be no better smell than marrow to a wolf, a fox, or a bear.
In the forest, she put the sleeping maiden on soft moss and used her bear strength and her human wits to build a cottage. When the strange maiden awoke, the wild woman said, I built you this cottage. It's lovely, the strange maiden said. Will you stay here with me for a little while? Only a very short while, the wild woman said, though she was tempted to stay long-term and act as the girl's protector. They sat for a few minutes, and the wild woman told the strange maiden some of the botanical aspects of the local fauna. Not only did she learn fast, she found that as they went on, she understood the elements of the plants that made them safe or not before being told. As they walked through the woods, increasingly the wild woman clutched at her midsection, occasionally spitting bloody foam from her doubled-over position. When she could wait no longer, the wild woman gifted the strange maiden with the headband and the guitar, even as the girl cried. I have one more thing for you, the wild woman said. And she turned back into a bear, and she ripped open her own stomach, disemboweling herself in a terrible rending of flesh and tearing of muscle. With her bloody claws, she removed from her bowels the golden ball, which had begun to rot her flesh from the inside out as soon as she had eaten the three-eyed boy. The strange maiden did not want to take the bloody ball from the bear, but it was her aunt's dying wish. She was left scared and alone in the woods with her cottage and newfound knowledge. She skinned the bear, there was no usable meat, and indeed, she had lost her taste for flesh. She buried the bones beneath a tree next to the cottage. She buried the corrupted flesh in the nearby woods and watched as they turned into swampland over the years. Her loneliness turned to solitude and back again, sometimes lasting years, sometimes shifting several times in a single day. There was no one she got along well with. One day, she heard faint singing in the distance through the trees. Thank you for listening to the Domestic Aggressive Podcast. This has been The Gnome's Tale, the fourth installment of the East of the Sun, West of the Moon Quartet. My name is Meredith Lindgren, and I wrote and read the episode. All sound design and music are by Nathan Paul. <laughs>